Global Business News 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. From Bloomberg World Headquarters, I'm Charlie Pellet. A mixed picture for U.S. equities right now. The Dow little changed. Holding at a record, it is up six points right now. The S&P 500 index, NASDAQ, both retreating from records. They are moving lower. S&P down 12. Uh, we have got uh, NASDAQ lower by 71. NASDAQ dropping 1.1%. The S&P down by 5 tenths of 1%. Amazon and Verizon after the closing bell. Gold up 11.80 the ounce, up 9 tenths of 1% to 1261. And West Texas Intermediate crude 49.01 a barrel, higher by 6 tenths of 1%. I'm Charlie Pellet, and that a Bloomberg Business Flash. Thank you very much, Charlie Pellet. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. Time right now is at 2.48 on Wall Street, 11.48 on the West Coast. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Megan McCardle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. In Youngstown, Ohio, the employment problem isn't a shortage of jobs, nor a shortage of workers. The only thing standing between willing employers with good, steady wages to offer and willing workers who want them is a drug test. People flunk for a variety of substances, of course, but a lot, probably a majority, flunk because of cannabis, which can stay in your system for up to a month. Why do employers test for a drug that so many people use socially? Because illegal drug use is a reasonably good proxy for a trait that psychologists call conscientiousness. Conscientious workers are more likely to come every day and follow your rules, like, say, those about not showing up for work high. But as laws change, that may present employers, insurers, and regulators with a problem. Legal marijuana may never become as ubiquitous as alcohol in our society, but it will certainly become more common if legal sanctions continue to erode. And employers are going to have to figure out whether they can still afford to lose those workers. I'm Megan McArdle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. For more commentary, go to BloombergView.com or view Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard every weekday at this time also at 548, 848, and 1140 at Wall Street time. Well, our next guest and his team have named Melbourne, Australia as its Intelligent Community of the Year. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, why. Not to be confused with Melbourne, Iowa. (laughs) Is there? People are also, there is. And I'm sure it's a wonderful place. It's (laughs) lovely. There's at least one stoplight there. At least one stoplight. Robert Bell back with us, co-founder of Intelligence Community Forum. It's a think tank really focused on uh, the 21st century community in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you both. Melbourne, Australia. Tell me what's going on. Melbourne, Australia. Well, is what was the criteria for ranking, first of all? For you know, our, our criteria? Yeah. Our criteria, well, they're pretty complex, but it has to do with broadband connectivity, how good they are at building a, a workforce that can do knowledge work, which is the future. Um, they're track record in innovation and digital inclusion, a lot of stuff. But what I actually wanted to, to refer to as somebody else's criteria, um, the Economist Intelligence Unit. Now, they're not Bloomberg, but they're pretty good. And they look, they do a, an index every year of livability. And what's interesting about this mm-hmm. is that Melbourne is our choice for Intelligent Community of the Year. For the past six years, they've been the most livable city in the world. Uh, and that's really interesting. They, these guys, it, the economists, look at crime and crime and terrorism, um, the quality, availability, and cost of health care. Right. Uh, corruption, censorship, whether the restrictions on social religious life, education, how good is it, how much does it cost, and then all the infrastructure stuff, including, of course, the ability to get online. Uh, and so those two things ended up being right next to each other uh, for us. And what was interesting was that, that – 
about half the cities in this annual study declined this year hmm. and half advanced. And, and the choices were really odd. For instance, ten, the ten, among the ten best, most improved livability scores were Tehran in Iran, hmm. uh, Kathmandu in Nepal, uh, and also Honolulu, which is really surprising because for those of us on the East Coast, we can't imagine how life in Honolulu can get any better. Right, right. Among uh, the ten worst. For those, for those who have been for a long time in Honolulu, you can't imagine how it can get better. <laughs> okay. I haven't been there in a while. Uh, but among the ten worst places you'd expect, Detroit, Damascus, but also, believe it or not, Paris and Athens. So the most interesting takeaway for me, and this is the one that really applies to Melbourne and, and our vision of, of what makes a good city, is that most of the top scores go to the mid-sized cities of the world in fairly rich nations that have a fairly low population density. So right. Canada and Australia have, are the nations with the most of them. Canada and Australia. Yeah. yeah. That makes it's sense. intriguing. So uh, you mentioned something that interests me, uh, corruption. Uh, how big a problem is corruption uh, in, in major cities around the world? Uh, number one, and, and maybe less importantly, but how do you measure that? Well, the, uh, there's a corruption index. It's put out Transparency, Transparency International, International every yeah. year. They pick that one up. I mean, how big a problem is it? I don't know. We're, we're human beings. How big a problem do you think it is? It's always there. It always needs to be policed. Well, I, I ask because, it, you know, in, in the U.S., for all of the excitement we want to have in certain cities and in, in, in back east in particular, but also Orange County and so on, corruption is, is a rare problem in the U.S., I think, uh, on a massive scale. And I don't think that that's true internationally. It is absolutely not true internationally. That all comes down to the culture, right? The culture of respect for the rule of law. Um, it's like a, another an analogous statistic is um, the U.S. has the world's best record against kidnappers. Now, the FBI is good, but a lot of other crime, you know, anti-crime organizations are good. But kidnapping is simply not tolerated in this country, right? Culturally, but in other and countries, it used to be. It is not or not tolerated, but it was it was a common problem in in crime, street crime. Uh, in the 1880s, and especially uh, even in the early 1920s, was one of the reasons we have the FBI. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Do you think someone like an Elon Musk, with his visions out there, whether it's through the board, would go company, into kidnapping? No, he would stop, not. Corey Johnson. So, <laughs> in terms of building tunnels and different ways of getting around, I mean, how does that factor into your vision of the future city? And does it? Well, I would. I guess I would say it doesn't because I've been seeing that stuff since I was 12 years old. I was promised flying cars when I was 12 years old. Yeah, but um, we're closer than ever. We're getting closer, and it'll it'll come, and it'll be, it will be transformative. But at ICF, what our concern is really the people side of the city, right? So the infrastructure is extremely important. How do people use that infrastructure? How do they use digital infrastructure to make their lives better, for instance, and the life of the city better? That's something we can do today, and we don't have to spend whatever on earth it would cost to run an underground tunnel from New York to Washington to get that to happen and who's going to pay for it and all those good things. So we're, we're rather more interested in what you can do with technology today to make life here better. Is there a point, though, where technology we need to back off a little bit? Well, you and I were talking before we went on the air about, yeah, sure, I'd, I like to put down my phone as much as the next person. Yeah. Uh, that's personal choice. I, I, I actually believe firmly that when technology comes along, we always see the bad side first. So when, when, when the Model T first became popular, uh, it was predicted that it would destroy America because it used to be that if a young man came to call on your daughter and court her, he had to sit in the front parlor and you could keep your eye on him. And when he drove up in his car and took your daughter off someplace else, you didn't know what was going to happen. Right. So, but we've now you know, learned that if you learn how to run the technology properly, you can make it your benefit. So I assume sooner or later in the next 10 years, we'll figure out how to make the phone a little bit, little bit less consuming. 
Unless that, people can make money from making it more consuming. Do your notions of cities uh, and, and their livability uh, change uh, as we, as, a, as the U.S. pulls out of the Paris Climate Accord and issues like pollution that make places like Beijing so untenable uh, could get worse? Absolutely. Absolutely. Livability, you know, we don't, we so seldom appreciate the real things that make our lives valuable and livable. And, yeah, clean air, clean water, I kind of like them, but I grew up before the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. So I dimly remember how bad it was. We fixed it, and the idea that we're going to turn around and go backwards is pretty scary. One of the, one of the interesting things that came out of, as I was reading this livability study and thinking about Melbourne and looking at our data on it, was really some lessons for big places, because the problem is the larger cities in the world actually don't score very well on this. Right. Right? So uh, New York doesn't score that well. San Francisco doesn't score that well, because they've got, you know, they've got the problems we all know about in a big city. They are crowded. They have got their infrastructure is overstretched. Housing is expensive. It's hard to find. Higher crime rates, more noise. Yeah. Um, Actually, I saw a statistic that just blew me away. San Francisco has the lowest share of children in the in a U.S. city in the U.S. because it's so expensive. Wow. Yeah. Mirror scenic. So we've got, that's the challenge, for the, big, the challenge yeah. for the big places in the world. Yeah, that's right, because they are pushing more and more people away and attracting kind of maybe more of the same, if you will. Robert Bell, we got to run. Co-founder, Intelligent Community Forum, uh, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Thursday.